Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back to Loose Ends, the Singh Family Tragedy. This is episode 28, Hiding in Plain Sight. My name is Graham Crowley. Thank you very much for joining me. This podcast has been created for an adult audience, so listener discretion is advised. I mentioned in the last episode I had contacted five of the brightest and best investigative journalists in the country. Alas, I'm yet to hear from anyone else, but I remain hopeful that a journalist will take a look at the evidence. I'm joined again this week by Jeff Johnson, pro bono solicitor acting for Max Seeker. Hi, Jeff. How are you? I'm well, Graham, and you? Yes, very well, thanks. Good to have you back, Jeff. This week we are talking about the Garden Fork, yes? Yes, yeah, I'll just be adding a couple of issues to what you've already had to say at some length about the Garden Fork Grinder. Hopefully it'll add to our narrative rather than the police narrative. And you have some comments uh, on feedback. Yeah, Graham, uh, you've had some insightful feedback from a couple of your listeners concerning the footprints and some tech issues, and I'll deal with those in next week's episode. Before getting to the substance of this week's episode, I'd like to relate to you and your listeners a little story of what befell Max Seeker shortly after I delivered the voluminous petition to the Governor and the Attorney-General on the 11th of April 2019. The petition and the supporting affidavit covered over a 100 pages of text. It was accompanied by three large volumes containing 83 exhibits. The preparation required months of work and a number of visits with Max Seeker at the prison, checking facts and obtaining instructions. Listeners might recall from episode 22, I think, what I told them about the sudden withdrawal of consent for the conduct of a lie detector test. Well, within two weeks of delivery of the petition, Max Seeker's parents were suddenly denied visits. I subsequently ascertained that Max Seeker had been taken into maximum security from the prison at Woolston, bound and shackled, I understand, and was incarcerated in a maximum security cell. And I'll have more to say about that in a little bit. I actually had an appointment to visit him also, and that visit was then denied without adequate explanation. I was finally permitted a non-contact visit after about a week. 
in that short time since I had seen him, the deterioration in his appearance was to say the least dramatic. He was presented for the visit by heavily armed guards. He was shackled hand and foot, and I had access through a perspex screen to a small cubicle behind that screen. From what I could ascertain, upon being taken to maximum security, Max Seeker was then confined in a small cell for 23 hours a day, being allowed out one hour a day for some exercise. And the only company he was permitted in that cell was the Bible. Now, during that week, he was subjected to psychiatric assessment. And as I understand it, for the period of three months that he remained incarcerated in that facility, there were other psychiatric assessments. Anyway, on the first visit, Max was able to show me a letter that he was given from correction through the Perspex screen. That letter said that information had been received that he, along with others, was intending to escape from prison. To say I was gobsmacked is an understatement. As I was finally able to ascertain, that information was contained in an anonymous letter sent to prison authorities. That was sufficient to cause the reaction from the authorities that I've described. I'd suggest several issues arrived. Max Eaker had been in prison for over 10 years. Reports indicate that he could be regarded as a model prisoner. I had, after his maintaining his innocence over all that time, agreed to review his case on a pro bono basis. I had spent months preparing a detailed and compelling petition, which included fresh evidence from Professor DeFlo as to the time of death being a time at which Max Seeker had an alibi. The petition had just been presented. There was some media publicity reporting on the presentation of the petition. And then, within two weeks of that presentation, there is this anonymous and spurious report that Max Seeker is planning to escape. He is then incarcerated for three months in maximum security. Graham, you may recall my previous comment, quote, and elephants might fly, close quote. Well, the suggestion that Max Seeker was planning escape is as likely as Santa Claus delivering toys to all the children of the world on Christmas Eve. Faced with the anonymous letter, the person who had to make the decision within corrective services was left with no alternative other than to follow procedures. I had correspondence and a number of conversations with that person, and no criticism is made of that person or officers at the prison. They had to do what they were required to do. An investigation was launched into the source of the anonymous complaint, but according to my information, without any positive result. Well, what is relevant? Consider the following. One, the anonymous letter is likely to have been authored by someone with knowledge of the consequences. Two, it may have been someone who had been in prison 
as a result of information provided to police in relation to the Chinese kidnapping. Three, it may have been someone that feared the impact of the contents of the petition and supporting documentation. Four, it was likely someone that understood the likely effect that this transfer to maximum security would have on Max Seeker's mental health. Five, it was likely someone that hoped this anonymous letter would lead to a breakdown in Max Seeker's mental capacity and see an end to the petition requiring the Attorney-General to refer the matter to the Court of Appeal. Six, the anonymous letter may have been authored by those that might have actually been involved in the murders of the Singh siblings. Seven, the investigation obviously led to the conclusion that there was no evidence that Max Seeker was planning to escape and following the requirement that he remain in maximum security for that three-month period, he was returned to Wolston Correctional Centre. Eight, the suggestion was always ridiculous. Nine, it was designed to break Max Seeker's resolve. 10. It did not succeed. Max Seeker survived this cruel attack with his mental state intact. And 11. Max Seeker continued to maintain that he did not kill the Singh siblings and still does. Interesting story, Jeff. I thought it was worth relating because mm. the thing about that, that reaction from whoever wrote that letter occurred within two weeks of the petition being delivered. Mm. And... Uh, certainly wasn't designed with Max's interests, best interests in mind. Yes, yes. Interesting story. Coincidence, except the timing is rather remarkable. <laughs> very, very remarkable, uh, Graham. And I mean, if I could have taken photographs of the visits I had at Maximum Security, listeners would readily understand the sort of pressure that that would put on somebody who was accused of trying to escape where nothing could be further from the truth. Um, but anyway, um, as I say, Max was resilient. He he took it in his stride and they didn't break him down mentally. So sure. I then went on with the petition. Okay, moving on. I've previously covered the findings of the supposed murder weapon, but you wish to address them from a legal viewpoint. Is that correct? Uh, yes. Yes, Graham. I just want to pull that together. Graham, in episode 27, I took your listeners to photographs and transcript that, in my opinion, cemented the assertion that Max Seeker did not make those blackened footprints. The evidence that I canvassed in that episode may have been a little complex and confusing, but I doubt that many listeners would be left thinking that fingerprint powder floating around in the air miraculously found its way under covering and attached only to the areas of the bleached footprints. In case there is any doubt left, let me refer to one further photograph, and that's RC-281, which I know you've already placed on the Loose Ends Facebook page, and thank you for that. You're welcome. That photograph was taken on the 26th of April 2003 by the Socko, who took the other photographs that I've had plenty to say about. You will observe and note the following. The plastic covering does not extend over the upper staircase. If you look at that photograph, you can see that the plastic covering stops 
just at the base of the upper part of the staircase, and there's no evidence of any plastic sheeting above that point. There is evidence of fingerprint powder on the sides of the steps going up the upper staircase. There's evidence of fingerprint powder on the walls. There are no other photographs taken of the upper stairs on that day. One must ask why. Clearly, there is no plastic to be seen at the base of the upper level, and I would suggest there's no photograph showing any plastic covering on that carpet at the base of the lower stairs where the mysterious impression one appears on the afternoon of the 28th of April. There is no reported observation of any blackened footprints on any part of the stairs or at the base of the stairs when these photographs were taken on the 26th of April. One is, maybe, then entitled to infer that they were made after the fingerprint powder was thrown around. Nor were any observed when Officer L said he removed the plastic covering at lunchtime on the 28th of April 2003. Maybe they were there, but Officer L says nothing. It's interesting to note, one would have to accept when removing the plastic sheeting, and bear in mind Officer L was forced to admit there was no newspaper, those stairs would have been left open to all to view, yet nobody sees any blackened footprints at lunchtime on the 28th of April. Well, at least there's none reported by the officers that removed the plastic. Now, if that doesn't remove any doubt that might remain, I don't know what would. The evidence relating to the blackened footprints was generated by that same Socko that, along with the lead detective, found the garden fork on the 5th of May 2003. Graham, why are there no photographs taken of the barbecue area of the garage before the 5th of May 2003. Good question, that Jeff. Soc that Soco RC produced 548 photographs as part of his statement for the Seeker trial. He said in evidence at committal they were numbered consecutively. He was obliged to produce all photographs he took as part of disclosure requirements. Did he do so or did he exclude some? I don't know, but conspicuous by their absence are any photographs of the following. The barbecue and garden implements behind the barbecue, said to be observed by several Socos from the 22nd of April onwards. <clears throat> Two, the knife located on the top of the barbecue, the upper level of the stairs on the 26th of April, the area at the base of the stairs before discovery of the footprint, the covered stairs before appearance of the footprint. The absence of such photographs defy rational explanation, Graham. The only explanation, in my opinion, is that they were taken but not produced at trial because they did not support the police narrative. I find it impossible to believe that any soccer, let alone a soccer with RC's experience, would not have taken those photographs. 
The evidence said that they were initially looking for a knife as a possible murder weapon. They find the knife on the top of the barbecue. Best example, the first thing you would do, surely, Graham, is to take a photograph of that knife in situ on top of the barbecue. They say it does not exist. My friend, that is beyond incompetence. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yes, I do, as a matter of fact. I'll ask the listener to imagine for a moment that they are the police photographer. You, as a photographer, have one job. You're instructed to attend a crime scene at 20 Grass Tree Close and photograph it. You have years of training. You know what is required. There is no time limitation. You can take as long as you like. And we know that the photographer did not finish on the first day and they went back on the second day and the third day and the fourth day. Cost was not an issue here, Jeff. They did not have to account to a private client for how long they spent taking photographs. The camera the photographer had was digital, state-of-the-art, unlimited disk capacity. And you would know as a photographer it is crucial that you photograph every single square metre of that crime scene. And why? Because your aim and hope is that eventually you will need to show the crime scene photos to the prosecutor, to a judge, and to a jury. When the crime scene is handed back to the family, any remaining potential evidence is lost. Investigators come and go, police are promoted, they retire, they resign, new investigators are assigned. It is likely there were investigators involved in the Singh murder investigation that had never stepped inside that crime scene. The investigation went more than five years after all. So they, judge, the jury, the prosecutor, only have the photos that you took of the crime scene to rely on. And then the investigators find out there is a whole area of the house, almost the size of a study or a small bedroom, that was not photographed. And I'm referring, of course, to the area in the garage where the barbecue was stored and where the garden fork, the murder weapon, was allegedly found. And then the investigators also find out that part of the staircase leading up to the upstairs area was also not photographed. And I can tell you in the real world, I would expect that you, as a photographer, that would be the last day you ever took a photograph for the Queensland Police Service. You would not be allowed near a crime scene again, likely transferred back to general duties, unlikely to be promoted again in your career. Jeff, I find it more than a coincidence that in two areas of the crime scene where there are strong suspicions about the integrity of the evidence, that there are no photographs of those two areas. And I can say with some confidence that any suggestions those areas were accidentally missed is ridiculous. Graham, I couldn't agree more. I mean, this is one of, if not the most serious murder that's occurred in Queensland. The horrendous murders of three young siblings in gruesome fashion. You can't tell me that the officers that were directed to photograph that crime scene wouldn't have done it inch by inch if they didn't and they claim that to be incompetent. I simply cannot believe that to be true. 
it's just obvious when you look at what photographs weren't produced and the way in which the prosecution used those particular instances of the garden fork and the blackened footprint to secure conviction, that the absence of photographs was an important aspect in the promotion of the police narrative. I'll say no more. Graham, now let me just make a couple of further comments concerning the garden fork as the supposed murder weapon. Firstly, I'd encourage those listeners that may have just joined the podcast or those that might want to refresh their memory to listen to what you had to say in episodes 16, 17 and 18 in relation to the garden fork and foot impressions. From a legal perspective, both the garden fork and the footprints were circumstantial evidence. You dealt with the various aspects of the pitchfork in the garage miracle in episodes 16, 17 and 18, including evidence given by the several Socos about eating the fork with other garden implements behind the barbecue from as early as the 22nd of April 2003. There is no need for me to revisit those matters that have already been canvassed at length by you. At the conclusion of your examination, I think you decided that the evidence more likely supported a finding that the garden fork had been planted rather than incompetence on an epic and historical level. I would not disagree. That's correct, Jeff, and I still am of that opinion. And I still don't disagree. The garden fork was said to connect Max Seeger to the crime because the killer had to have known the fork was kept behind the barbecue in the garage and Max Seeker had that knowledge. That was it. Let me then comment. Firstly, it's highly doubtful the fork was the murder weapon given that, in our opinion, it is more probable that the fork was introduced after the murders were committed. That's right, it was found 13 days after the murders hiding in plain sight, really. The blood on the fork, according to the independent pathologist engaged by the Seeger family, says that the blood appears to be transfer stained and not caused by blood spatter from the gruesome murders. Why would the killer use the garden fork when that heavy trident was available upstairs and in plain sight. Max Seeker's DNA was not found on the fork. There is the DNA of some unidentified male that appears to be on the fork, but the Crown and Queensland Health have, to date, declined to produce that fork for retesting. Why? How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. 
Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Max Seeker came to the house on Sunday night. Neilma was waiting for him. They argued. He strangled her. Canal and City were asleep, plain so during the altercation. Seeker then went to the garage and took the garden fork, went back upstairs and bludgeoned all three Singh siblings to death. He returns the bloody garden fork to the garage and replaces it carefully behind the barbecue. He removes any trace of blood from his person, clothes, car, etc., but doesn't do so with the garden fork. He returns the bloody garden fork to its resting place behind the barbecue. That's the police narrative, and yes, in my opinion, if that's accepted, then the tooth fairy is real. Rant over, Graham. (laughs) It's also important to find the murder weapon where it was because a random killer would be unlikely to find the garden fork hidden behind the barbecue and then replaced there, which is really weird. It is. And don't forget, Neilma having her hair pulled out by the roots with two clumps found upstairs and numerous hairs found throughout the downstairs of the house. Her blood was found on the wall above the staircase and on the bleach bottle downstairs, and yet the siblings slept blissfully on. And may I comment at that stage where it didn't suit the police narrative, they were just distractions. Graham, then let me just outline what I see as the legal ramifications of all that. Firstly, how could anybody not have a reasonable doubt that the fork was in fact the murder weapon? How could anybody not have a reasonable doubt that one person committed these murders? How could anybody not have a reasonable doubt that the footprints were made by anybody, let alone Max Seeker, before fingerprint powder was spread about on the carpet? How could anybody not have a reasonable doubt that Max Seeker in fact went to Grass Tree Close on Sunday night or at any time before 2.20pm on Tuesday the 22nd of April? Given the compelling and fresh evidence from Professor DeFlow, how could anybody be left in any doubt, reasonable or otherwise, that these murders occurred on Monday night, Tuesday morning, and not Sunday night, Monday morning, as alleged by the police and prosecution? Any comment, Graham? Jeff, just that I'm just regularly stunned by the bizarre coincidences, the parallels between this and the Holland case, which I've, you know, I've said to you on a number of occasions, we've got sure. si- we've got situations where there's dodgy evidence, and as soon as you get dodgy evidence, there's no photographs, there's no written records, and everything becomes blurry. In the Holland case, we had this ridiculous situation where there was a mum, a made-up maggot. <laughs> <laughs> right, <laughs> simple. Like there was made. It was just a made-up maggot. There was a right. tsunami of evidence to show the maggot never existed. Scientific evidence, 
lack of photographic evidence on two separate days, lack of written evidence. Mum did not appear in the car boot until after the original trial. So for a long time, it was never, ever an issue. And then years passed and the Queensland police were forced to conduct a review of their investigation. And at that point, the Queensland Police Service went to ridiculous lengths to prove that the maggot did exist. And it didn't matter how much lipstick they applied, Jeff, it was always going to be a pig. Yeah. That's why I named that episode Denial. Right. And to add insult to injury, senior police then fronted a media conference and with a straight face and a <clears> superior <throat> look, confidently stated the maggot always existed. Yep. Just disgraceful. And you fast forward 12 years and you have the Singh murders. And once again, we have this evidence where there's no photographic evidence to support it. There's no documentary evidence to support it. It's all very dodgy. I could almost call this a mum, a made-up murder weapon. Yep. But then you'd have to say there was also a muff, a made-up footprints. (laughs) It sounds harsh, but I have no other way of explaining the contradictions with the evidence. I cannot reconcile the evidence with what is in the brief. And, Graham, when you combine that with that job log where they refused to take a statement from Lisa L, where the mysterious disappearance of page 47 has never been rectified, where there's, in fact, no evidence that Max Seeker went over to the Singh House on Sunday night, where there's evidence from various witnesses of hearing things on the Monday night, and now there's the compelling evidence from Professor DeFlo referring not to one, but two European studies that establish that the plume of froth observed from Canal's nose and mouth wouldn't be there outside 24 hours. When you combine all of that, I mean, that just increases the major concerns we have concerning the garden fork and the footprint evidence. Jeff, let me say this. If a day of reckoning ever comes for the Queensland Police Service, and I have serious doubts that it ever will, QPS, they'll look you in the eye, they'll keep a straight face, and with a superior look, they will confidently say, yes, that was the murder weapon, and yes, the fingerprint powder snuck in under the plastic and attached itself to the bleach in the carpet. Yep. And when it is pointed out to them, there is a tsunami of evidence to contradict that, including that it will be scientifically impossible. They will look you in the eye again, Jeff, and in a confident, authoritative voice, they will talk down to you as if you are intellectually challenged (laughs) and tell you today is in fact Tuesday, when you (laughs) and the rest of Australia knows full well it is Monday, and that is what you are up against. Yep, and I will understand that. And in addition to that, we're also up against an Attorney General that's quite happy to hide behind the Holzinger decision and provide no response to any of the issues that we've raised and provide no reasons for refusal to refer to the Court of Appeal. Let me comment on that. 
But let me say first, in the case of the Crown versus Max Seeker, they're going to need a whole lot more lipstick, mate. <laughs> but I think you're right. But if you are wondering why I say I doubt there will be ever a day of reckoning, it is this. The Attorney General, the Director of Public Prosecutions, the Queensland Police Service and the Queensland Government have all seen and read your petitions numbered one and two. They know a world of pain will visit on all of them if this matter reaches the Court of Appeal. They cannot let this happen. They can. They just cannot let that happen. And the only way to prevent it happening is to ensure that any petition in relation to Max Seeker never reaches the Court of Appeal. And again, look at the Holland case. The Attorney General is obliged by Queensland legislation to hold an inquest into the death of Leanne Holland. Obliged by law. She refuses. She is breaking her own laws. And the reality is, of course, the Queensland government has decided it's best for the Holland matter to remain buried because they know if an inquest is held, a whole world of pain will visit them and the Queensland Police Service. And I believe they've taken and will take the same position as the Max Seeker petitions. And like you with the journalist, Jeff, I sincerely hope I'm proven wrong. Well, you know, that somebody can hold themselves out to be the chief legal officer for Queensland and ignore the system of justice to the extent that both those cases are evidence of is beyond my belief. I think you can only call it a cover-up and a cover-up of monumental proportions. And the Holzinger decision has given stamp of approval to that cover-up. It's very easy to overcome and test the matters that you and I have raised in this podcast by simply referring this matter to the Court of Appeal. The Court of Appeal can do a proper legal assessment of what's being said and the legal process can take its course. And there is no excuse, in my view, for the Attorney General not to make that referral. Having said that, I'll leave it at that. It dawned on me, Jeff, just the other day, there's a question that you and I have never discussed, and that is this. How many of the Sockos and detectives who attended the Singh crime scene knew about the two significant areas of the crime scene that were never photographed? And how many knew that the murder weapon was not found until 15 days later? And how many knew that fingerprint powder snuck under the plastic and blackened the footprints? Now, I'm thinking just the inner circle knew and the rest didn't. And I would say this. I would like to meet a detective or a socko, if there is one on this planet, that believes fingerprint powder can sneak in under plastic and attach itself to other evidence. Well, of course, the Bond University research pretty much proved that to be a furphy. Well, yep. We know of at least one socko who was angry when he found out about the Garden Fork discovery, commenting that he had asked three times to search the garage and been refused. But how many others, how many detectives and Sockos are listening to this podcast or have talked to mates who have listened to this podcast and said, did you know there's two whole areas in the Singh house that weren't photographed? 
did you know about this mysterious blackened footprint evidence? And I'm just wondering how many, of, and we're talking many, probably 30 or 40 police here, how many of them me actually say, knew that? Let me say this, Graham, and I think this is relevant. I mean, the murders occurred in April of 2003. This thing didn't get to trial until 2012. Yes. That's an enormous period of time. People retire, people head off to do other things, people are transferred. When they come to court, if they many of them didn't give evidence probably, when they come to court to give evidence, they're not allowed into the court to hear other evidence by other witnesses before they give their evidence. And at that stage, many of them may be interested only in going to court, telling them what they recall uh, and what they recorded in statements all those years before and getting out of the place. It would be highly doubtful that many of them would want to hang around and listen to day after day after day of evidence. Uh, So the likelihood is that many of them simply don't know about those issues. Exactly. I would sincerely like to meet an investigator or a SOCO anywhere in Australia or elsewhere who believes that fingerprint powder got under the plastic. I'd be interested to hear what is said about that and how they justify arriving at that conclusion. So good luck to you, my friend. I've previously said I approached the two police who were in charge of the investigation of the Singh murders and neither of them responded to me. And I previously asked detectives or SOCOs who were involved if they wanted to talk to me about it. And I again, I invite any detective or any SOCO who was involved in the Singh murder investigation, I invite you to talk to me. I will keep your details completely anonymous. I'll even have someone read out your words if that's what you prefer. Well, while we're on the subject of invites, let me again renew my invite to the Attorney General to confer with me, meet with me, explain to me even on a confidential basis where all of the issues that we've raised that that, that I unearthed since 2018 might be wrong, how the transcript and the documentary evidence that I've produced is not reflective of the facts. So I renew that invite for her and or her advisors to meet with me and go through those issues and convince me that I'm totally on the wrong track. Suffice it to say, I probably won't hold my breath. I look forward to that meeting. Mm, me too. So, Graham, uh, let's close out this episode, and I want to just make some brief comments with respect to the spa bath. The spa bath, in fact, didn't feature to any real degree at the trial. The head soco who arrived with her team on the 22nd of April, when the bodies were discovered, took the temperature of the spa bath at 6.22 that evening. It was found to be 32 degrees Celsius. Max Seeker had told police when interviewed on the 22nd of April 2003 that after he arrived at the house, he turned off the hot water tap into the spa. I will not go into detail with respect to the various statements taken other than to say the following. If the hot water is left to run, it will eventually simply become cold water. There was some testing that indicated that With a slow trickle of hot water, it might maintain some heat for a period of time, but in reality, that testing 
wasn't continued with, and I'll refer to that shortly. The spa bath itself did not heat the water. The only hot water that could be introduced was via the hot water system, which was solar and on the roof. Testing was conducted with respect to flow rates and temperature changes in the spa, and some at least of that testing was directed by Professor John Bell, who was the head of school of the science and engineering faculty at QUT in Brisbane. Professor Bell was not called by the prosecution to give evidence. Although denied by police, I'm in no doubt that the narrative was that Max Seeker arrived at Grass Tree close earlier than 2.20pm and he turned on the hot water tap and that caused the temperature to be 32 degrees when the temperature was taken by the SOCO at 6.22pm. In my opinion, that narrative changed to Max Seeker arrived early to clean up the crime scene when the spa bath testing didn't support the police narrative. I contacted Professor Bell and I subsequently met with him at QUT in Brisbane. Professor Bell informed me that it was his recollection that following the initial testing to which I have referred, he told police that more sophisticated testing was needed and that would incur a cost. Professor Bell then said that as far as he could recall, he heard nothing further from police after that day. I suggest that the initial testing did not suit the police narrative and they were not going to engage in further testing with Professor Bell, particularly at a cost, and risk the emergence of exculpatory evidence that did not support their unshakable belief that Max Seeker was the murderer. The temperature of the spa bath at 6.22pm was, as I suggest, more indicative of the post-mortem interval now proposed by Professor DeFlo, being 12 to 24 hours prior to Dr. Alumbri observing the plume of froth on Tuesday afternoon, the 22nd of April, 2003. And Graham, that's all I need to say about the spa bath. At least it gives listeners a reason why there was no real evidence called in relation to the spa bath because it simply didn't suit the police and prosecution narrative at trial. I know I'm not alone when I say that I was always disturbed by the first responders saying that the bathroom was hotter than the other rooms. There was steam or fog on the mirrors. And it just didn't seem to me how that could be after 38 hours. <laughs> I couldn't agree more, my friend, particularly, uh, you know, I mean, I did a lot of work in respect to that spa bath area. And what a lot of people don't realise is that you can turn the hot water tap on. And even if it's reasonable rate, that hot water system will run out of hot water, you know, in less than an hour. And if the hot water tap is left on at that rate, then all that happens is that cold water flows from the hot water tap. So it is indeed surprising. The heat and humidity was noticed by those attending the crime scene on the Tuesday afternoon and that the temperature was still 32 degrees Celsius at 6.22, far more indicative of a much shorter time frame within which those murders occurred. In my opinion. You will recall that email from police 
directed to a professor whose name escapes me in 2006. And at that point, they said the bodies had been in the spa for some time between six to 12 hours from memory. <laughs> yep. And then by 2008, that had changed to 38 hours. Yeah, well, of course, they realised that they had a problem with Max Seeker's alibi. They have to change the narrative, I would respectfully suggest, my friend. Well, harping back to Holland again, another parallel, the window of opportunity, mate. The murder had to have happened in the Holland case on the Monday for Stafford to do it. If it didn't happen before 4pm, he didn't do it. And it was quite clear that the evidence showed she died on the Tuesday. And in the Seeker case, it had to have happened between midnight on the Sunday night and 7am Monday because that was the only window of opportunity he had. And let me say about Alibi, and I did notice that his sister had made a comment on the Facebook page, which very adequately dealt with the alibi uh, that her brother had for Monday and Tuesday. I mean, Lisa L swears she saw him at 7 o'clock in the morning of Monday. He was fresh, dressed, ready to go and pick up his kids, and that's what he did. And he had his children with him throughout that entire time. And in addition, he had his his new girlfriend over to dinner at the Seeker residence to introduce her to his children and parents on Monday night. And she was there for some time. And the children stayed throughout Monday night and into Tuesday when he took them to pick up Neilma and City to go to the movies. When you take all that into account, and you take into account the evidence given by those people who heard murderous screams and observed strange goings-on in the vicinity of the Singh House on Monday night and Tuesday morning, it all supports what Professor DeFlo says based on the evidence of the plume of froth. Mm. There we go. I don't think I can be clearer. of it. Well, that's it for Episode 28, Hiding in Plain Sight. Please join us next time when we discuss circumstantial evidence. If you follow the podcast, you will be advised when the further episode is released. Please rate and review the podcast for me if you can. It does raise awareness of the podcast and helps others to find the story. If you like the podcast, tell your family and friends. If you have questions, information or feedback, you can always contact me via the Facebook page, Loose Ends, The Sing Family Tragedy. My email address is looseends2003 at outlook.com. This episode was written and fact-checked by Jeff Johnson. This podcast was made possible with the grateful assistance of the ACAST Creator Network. Music, Before I Go, by RKVC. You'll find all my contact details in the show notes at the end of each episode. Thanks for joining me and listening to this story. That's it. Thanks, Graham. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. 
Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.